Numbers 35, verse 9, the Lord speaks to Moses. And he tells him to speak to the children of Israel and say this to them. That when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you. That the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment, until he gets a fair trial is the idea. Verse 13, and one of the cities which you give shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on one side of the Jordan, three shall appoint on the other side in the land of Canaan, And notice the reputation, these shall be cities of refuge. These six cities, God said, shall be refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So today we're going to finish the book of Numbers. Very simple for you to remember. The entire book of Numbers, this is it guys, you sat through it, is a 40-year journey from Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to the people of Moses, spoke to them audibly, to the land of promise, to the land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of Canaan, or what we know as Israel. That's the whole book of Numbers. Now, you know the deal. Tragically, sadly, none of the generation, think of this, none of the generation that had that first Passover experience, none of the generation that went to Sinai and, you know, saw the two tablets of stone and saw all God's provision, none of them will make it to Canaan land. Uh, very sad testimony. They will all die in the wilderness. They'll die of unbelief. They'll wander for 40 years. Their children will be the ones that Joshua will usher in. Uh, there's a, an important lesson, right? I need you to learn it early. Never let an 11-day lesson take you 40 years. Moses tells us this was an 11-day journey. Don't spend your entire Christian experience in the wilderness. And yet people do it. I run into people all the time. Pastor, is that you, Pastor Bob? Oh, I used to go to Calvary years ago. And then like my synapses fire and I kind of remember them. They were on fire telling people about Jesus. And I know it and they know it. None of us say it, but they've settled for some kind of half-hearted Christianity, some kind of Christianity light where they never walk in the fullness of all that God has. Uh, When Paul writes his commentary in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, He said all of these things were written. The entire book of Numbers was written. For you and me, the Holy Spirit writes this down, not to shame them, but that you and I wouldn't make the same mistake. Paul said these are examples uh, that we would walk in God's full redemption capacity. So the book of Numbers is done. What I read for you this morning in chapter 35 is an epilogue. Moses is saying, look, when you come into the land. Now, Moses won't even make it. Uh, You can read in the book of Numbers. You know, the people are complaining as usual. Moses prays for them. They're thirsty. They have no water. God tells him to strike the rock. This has happened before. Water comes out. He said, Moses, strike the rock. Moses gets angry. He strikes the rock twice. And God said, Moses, because you misrepresented me to the people, I'm not angry at them. You'll not make it into the promised land. And we stand back and say, come on, the guy had one bad day. He's had mumblers and complainers for 40 years. He's got one bad day. He's not going to make it in. God, could you be that strict? Listen, Moses was messing with a type. I'm going to nerd out for a couple minutes here, but you need to know this. There are types in Scripture. What's a type? 
Well, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said that, that the congregation of Israel were all baptized into Moses. They all went through the Red Sea. And then he says this, they all drank of the spiritual drink. They drank from the rock that was Christ. That's a type. So by revelation, Paul knows that the rock was a type of Jesus Christ. The Bible says Christ died once. He was struck once for our salvation. He doesn't die over and over again like in a mass. Moses messed with a type. He struck the rock twice. John understands this type. He said the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the law can never bring you in the promised land. It takes a Joshua, which is the Hebrew of Jesus, to bring us into the land. So, so there's a lot of typology, if you've ever heard that, going on here, and it's a beautiful thing. Verse 9 Moses tells them, when you come into the land, when you cross with Joshua into the Jordan, here's what you're going to do. You're going to appoint cities of refuge. Now, can I tell you two things about land? Remember the promise to Abraham was people and land. Your descendants will be like the stars in heaven, the sand on the seashore, right? This was the promise. But i got to tell you something about land because uh, land's an interesting thing. So in the book of Joshua, and I love this study when we get there, Joshua will dole out land in large chunks to 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. When he doles out that land, it's by lots, pun intended, right? They would draw lots. Uh, some of them would get beautiful land by the Mediterranean Sea. Others would get rugged terrain. Dan and Naphtali would be in the Galilee where there was beautiful fishing, right? Right? So I love this study because when we get there, we'll talk about your lot and my lot in life. We'll try and solve this conundrum of free will and God's sovereignty, right? But we've all been given a lot in life, right? For those who are really feeling good about themselves today, like you're a self-made person, you had no control over where you were born, when you were born, to whom you were born, what color of your skin or your ethnicity or your religious belief. So tone it down a little. Uh, you were given a lot in life. Now, what you make of your lot, we'll, when we get to Joshua, we'll talk about that. Let me say one more thing about land. Land rights go back 3,500 years, right here in the Bible. Now, we're in a time of revisionist history here in America. We're rewriting history, and most people talk about land squabbles that went on in the past and how that was wrong, etc., and a lot of it was, and I'm not here to talk politically about any of that. Let me just say this. The history of land in the world is history of conquest. Everybody understand that? Raiders came and they would take your land. Uh, Rousseau, who was an Enlightenment philosopher in the 16th century, he said the first man to build a fence around something and say, this is mine, was the original con artist. Anybody know why? Because he took it from somebody else. You understand? Land rights, you just can't say this is my land. Of course, we know that now. Land rights go back 3,500 years. The land of Canaan belonged to God. God said, this is my land. And a lot of people will say, well, wait a second. The Canaanites were there. The Perizzites were there. Israel was driving them out. Pastor Bob, isn't there something wrong with that? No. God said, this is my land. Now, you know, those people groups, they drove other people out. God gave them 400 years to repent. 
and God said, this is my land, and God was giving this land to the children of Israel. Now, the Levites would have no portion in the land. They were given 48 cities. Six of them would be cities of refuge. And you might say, well, what's a city of refuge? What are you talking about? Let's repeat it over and over again here. Well, you have to understand something about ancient, and some of it still exists today, Middle Eastern culture. Uh, here's how it worked. Let's say someone in your family was murdered. You couldn't pick up the phone. There was no phone. You couldn't call the police. You couldn't call the FBI. None of that existed. By the way, in some places in the world I've been, that still doesn't exist. The Calvary's not coming to help you out. So what you would do is you would have a meeting of your family, and you would pick an avenger of blood, right? So this person in your family, whoever you pick, they would forget about their career. The rest of their life was to track down the person who murdered the person in your family and kill them, or if they couldn't find them, they're next to kin. Now, you didn't pick Aunt Ethel or Aunt Sally or Uncle Charlie who plays the piano, right? You'd pick Nails or Nunzio or Uncle Sal. Somebody, somebody get the job done, right? This was justice in the ancient world. Now, let me tell you what God does about this. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, you have heard it of old, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you to turn the other cheek? And people will say, well, why is the Old Testament God all about an eye for an eye, vengeance, and why is the New Testament God, Jesus, all about turning the other cheek? Well, it's the same God. That's what I'm trying to teach you in this series. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God says, I change not. What God was doing in the Old Testament was putting guardrails against very heinous practices. But one of them was polygamy. Polygamy was so rampant, God kind of put guardrails around it. Uh, the same with slavery. The same with this form of justice. You know how it works. You know, a guy runs over my flowers, I want to burn his barn down. I burn his barn down, he kills my wife, and then we got the Hatfield and McCoys. This is where wars come from, right? James says this, where do wars come from? These little fires that we start. And God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, has Moses write a chapter that will only pertain to .001 of a population that would ever live. Like the law of leprosy in Leviticus, this would have no application except to a few people. And here's how it would work. Let's say you were out chopping wood. Uh, you're going to have a lot of logs for the fire in the winter, and you go to chop wood, the axe flies off, hits your neighbor in the head, you kill him. He chooses an avenger of blood. you got to run for the rest of your life. And it wasn't premeditated. You, weren't, you didn't want to murder anyone. Now today, that's manslaughter. You wouldn't go to jail. And yet God was concerned with this. God was concerned with our safety and security so much that he created cities of refuge. The God of the Old Testament cared about the oppressed and the person falsely accused. Now, it goes one more level into a spiritual context. In one of the most famous Psalms ever written, most of you can quote it, Psalm 91. It said, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, and I believe Moses wrote this psalm. 
Uh, the inscription in your Bible would say author unknown, but whenever the author is unknown, you can look back one more psalm. And Moses wrote Psalm 90, so I think he wrote Psalm 91. So Moses, I believe, is saying this out of experience. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Surely he will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. You think the Bible's relevant? That word pestilence is deadly infectious disease? He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. He shall be your truth, your shield, and your buckler. The reason why this psalm is so famous, because in this psalm, God promises to keep us safe. How relevant is that, right? For a whole year, we've been saying, stay safe to everyone. Did you know safety and security is the greatest need of any human being? That's why we hold babies, right? When babies cry, we hold them. It's a sign of being safe. That, that never leaves, by the way. That, that's why we value our home. It's a safe place. Uh, we all have these safe places because the soul, the seed of who we are, the Bible says in all, in, you know, we should guard our hearts, our souls, because it's the wellspring of life. We were hardwired for the soul to depend on God, that God would be our refuge. It's the most compelling need for every human being, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. We all need a refuge. We all need a place of safety and security. Now, this, the psalm gets problematic, right? Because we know we live in a fallen world. And um, it actually goes on. It says, verse 7, uh, it'll keep you from the hour that flies by day, the pestilence, the darkness, a thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, even the most high your dwelling, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Now, we got to slow down here. Because everybody knows in this room, bad things happen to God's people. We have the book of Job. Why is God making this promise? You know, we, I was sitting at the dinner table one night, and I was, I was, the night before I was traveling to a far country, and my wife said, let's pray for dad that he'll be safe. And my daughter said, well, we don't have to pray. He's the pastor of the church. What's going to happen to him? And I'm like, whoa, slow down. Slow down. Now, Satan's a genius here. And I hope you don't think it's blasphemy to call him a genius. Maybe he's not a genius. Maybe he's just been around long, right? He knows what he's talking about. He only speaks several times in Scripture. But one of the times he speaks is when he tempts Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. Three, th three temptations, they all escalate. Jesus is fasting. He says, turn the stones into bread. No big deal. Jesus said, man lives by every word in the mouth of God. It's not all about the flesh. The second one is, throw yourself down, and then Satan quotes the Bible. He quotes Psalm 91, verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. How clever is that? Throw yourself down. You're the son of God. Nothing's going to happen to you. In fact, God's your refuge and your help in time of need, nothing's going to harm you. Is that genius or what? 
By the way, that's the number one thing that makes us doubt the existence of God, human suffering. Satan can see in a realm we can't see. He he can see in in a realm Job never saw. Job never saw the conversation in heaven where God bragged on him and said, if you consider my servant Job, there's none like him in all the land. Problem is we can't see in that dimension. This scripture isn't saying nothing bad will ever happen to you. What it's saying is God is your refuge and that he will go through these things with you. The mission of Jesus was the cross. Jesus, the Holy Spirit falling like a dove, it doesn't say it was a dove, it said it was like a dove. And we think, oh, that's lovey-dovey, you know, like kind of girly, the dove, the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is a wind and a fire. Why was it a dove? A dove was a sacrifice. In fact, uh, we read in Luke when, when uh, Jesus' parents came to the temple, they couldn't afford the greater sacrifice. They sacrificed turtle doves. They were poor. When Jesus saw the dove, it was a sign of his mission that he was to be a sacrifice. And then that same spirit drove him into the wilderness. And then Satan comes and says, sacrifice? Are you kidding? You're the son of God. Go some other way. See, see the genius of the fiery darts of the enemy? And of course, Jesus defeated him as all of man, even though he was all of God. Jesus knew that God would cover him and he would be in the shelter of his wings. Now, this is an interesting phrase, verse 4. He shall cover you with, a fe- with his feathers. I didn't know God had feathers. Never saw them that way. And I didn't know God had wings, right? You know, I, no man has ever seen God. It's certainly, I don't picture God as some big hen, right? But the scripture writes things so we can understand, right? Spurgeon said if this wasn't in scripture, this would be blasphemous. But the picture's a beautiful one. And it's one that Jesus used when he rode in and looked at Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And now I leave to you a house that's desolate. And you shall no longer see me again, speaking to the Jews, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, Jesus said in that statement that he was God. He was the God of Psalm 91. He had Psalm 91 in mind. And so here's what a big, gnarly hen does. When a predator comes or when there's foul weather, pun intended again. You guys are slow this morning. Uh, Let's say there's hail. All the little chicks would come and the hen spread out her wings and she would take the incoming friendly fire or whatever. Same with a predator. Same same thing Jesus did, right? He covered us with his wings and took the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice on the cross. Covered. I know Moses is writing this because the word Passover in its root means to cover. But the blood on the doorpost meant God was covering This is what God wanted to do for Jerusalem, but they missed their day. They missed the day of their visitation. The imagery here is so beautiful that that God longs, Romans 8, to go through trials with us. All things really are working for the good. We'll never find out to heaven. We'll never know why X and Y happen until we get there. Now, we know people die. 
Some people get exacerbated. Somebody dies at 85 years old. How else are we going to get to heaven? We're all going to die. So don't judge God by people dying. But again, Satan's a genius in this. The person who makes God everything will make it through storms. When Jesus is your all in all, as we sang, life can be hard. You'll grieve. You'll go through all the seasons of life. But you'll come out the other side. It's incomprehensible to me how you do any of this without God. Because when you lose without God, you lose. When you lose everything, you lose everything. There's nowhere to turn. So last Wednesday, I started teaching premarital. It's always good for me because it's like a refresher for me when I teach it. And I had to be reminded of this. I, I, I told the couple sitting there, I said, you know, if you make God your number one, you'll do well in life and marriage. Make God your number one, right? Didn't Jesus say that? What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart. Love man, your neighbors, yourself, right? So I always tell couples, make God your number one and your spouse number two. She won't mind, he won't mind, and you'll do well. Uh, I tell people who aren't married, um, while you're seeking the one, or who you think is the one, make sure you understand they're going to be the two, right? See, when we replace the one, we get messed up. When the kids are one, we're, we're in trouble. When the spouse is one, we're in trouble. Make God the one, and everything else works, right? This is what Psalm 91 is saying. This is what God being our refuge is all about. Now, let's get back to cities of refuge. Who needs a city of refuge? Again, 0.001 of people that ever lived. Someone who, you know, was accused of manslaughter. But now that we spiritually understand it, who needs a city of refuge? Oppressed people, weary people, fearful people, grieving people, worried people, disappointed people, lonely people, heartbroken people, people unfairly accused. Psalm 9.9 says, the Lord will be a refuge in times of trouble. Truth is, we all need a city of refuge. We're all running from something. We've all been falsely accused. We're all fearful. We're, we're full of anxiety. We live in a, in a fallen world. I was reading a psychological journal this week that said, when the pandemic lifts, anxiety is going to go through the roof. <laughs> what? I thought it already went through the roof. Well, these psychologists are saying, no, it's going to get worse because, believe it or not, the people that were already anxious, they're doing pretty good because everybody joined their club. <laughs> Nobody's going out. Everybody's staying home. That's the way they like to live. When everybody starts going out again, they're going to think they're misfits again. I didn't write this. This is Psychological Journal. Um, most of you know I've been pushing R. Shea Cooper's book, A Most Beautiful Thing. Picked it up during Black History Month, story of the first inner city rowing team from the south side of Chicago. Uh, fabulous story. I looked on the back and I found out that Arshe lives in Brooklyn now. And so I had my assistant see if he would meet me for lunch, to which he said yes. And I met Arshe this last Tuesday at one of my favorite spots, the Yemeni Cafe. They make the best lamb I've ever had in Brooklyn. And we sat down and I said, Arshe, I have a disclaimer on your book. Uh, your mom gets radically saved. 
but you leave us hanging in the book. He goes, Bob, I'm a Christian. <laughs> he said, he said uh, when I went to write this book, I wasn't even a writer. I put worship music on for three days. I was a youth pastor. He said, I just couldn't go all there in the book because I wanted to get back in public schools. And he said, I have corporations buying thousands of these books and I'm speaking to them. But uh, I was so blessed. So the disclaimer's gone. There are still a few curse words. You'll survive, I'm sure. But listen to what Arshay told me. This was an eye-opener for me. Um, obviously, the guy really still loves crew. And uh, I said, Arshay, you're 38. Like, why would rowing still matter to you? And he said, Bob, you have to understand the way I grew up. He goes, I was actually a normal kid. I lived in horrible neighborhoods. He said, I never even had a detention. I was a really good kid. He said, but I had to live every day like I was struggling for my life. He said, I had PTSD at 11 years old. He said, I would go to the school in the morning and teachers wanted to know why I couldn't concentrate on my work. It's because I was hearing gunshots at night. He said, the water, I'm not making this up, became my refuge. He said, I would get in that boat and the water would calm my soul. And I thought that was so interesting. Because when we say God is our refuge, that could sound like cliche, like a Christian cliche. But listen, God's our refuge in a host of things. There are things that I do as a refuge. I'm sure there's things that you do. God being your refuge isn't sitting in a room with a Bible. It can be. But it can be a host of a lot of other things. The God who created this world and everything in it, he's created so much that can be our refuge. And just like the water was for our shade, maybe there's something that's your refuge. As we close, let me tell you three things about cities of refuge. Number one, they were easily accessible. Now go back and read the book of Leviticus. Three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other. No person in Israel was ever more than a half day journey or six miles from a city of refuge. Why is that important? Well, Paul told us God's not far from any one of us. Some people think to find God, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. One of the things that we didn't study in Leviticus, because I've preached it several Easter's, is the story of Israel complaining and God sending fiery serpents into the camp. Numbers chapter 21. And once again, they're dying because the venom is killing them. And Moses pleads on their behalf, and God says, Moses, take a serpent, make it of brass, put it on a pole. Anyone who looks at it shall live. And the people that looked at it lived, and the people that didn't died. And that story was a great story until Jesus comes along and tells Nicodemus, just as Moses put the serpent on the pole, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever looks at him will live. Here's the important point. God's not far from any one of us. When you were in the camp, you could have been in the first row, the last row, white, black, male, female, rich, poor. All you had to do was look and live. The Bible says, if you call, I will answer. Psalm 91, 15. If you call, I will answer. You don't have to wait for Sunday. You don't have to call the church. You can Wherever you are, you can call on God and he'll answer. Second thing about cities of refuge, they were clearly marked. Again, it wasn't hidden. There were signposts everywhere. You know, God's not hidden in our society. 
He really isn't. There's signposts everywhere. Psalm 62.8 said, pour out your heart before him because God is our refuge. By the way, we're the signposts today, right? You're sitting in a cubicle or you're in a restaurant. You're a signpost. You're clearly marked. And you can tell people how to get to God. And number three, it's a place where you would get a fair trial. Um, every scholar is convinced that when the writer of Hebrews wrote chapter 6, and the verses I'm going to read you, he had cities of refuge on his mind. And it's a companion of the book of Numbers. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured 25 years, he obtained the promise, for men indeed swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is of them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability of his counsel, the idea that he can't change, he confirmed it by an oath. Now follow this. That by two unchangeable or immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation, and I hope this is you, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having come high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I've been in the catacombs three times. And the last time I was there, I picked up this little item in the gift store. I picked it up so I could show you on a Sunday morning. The catacombs are ancient burial tombs underground in Rome. They are vast. They go for miles. And not only were it burial tombs, it's where Christians had to meet uh, on Sunday morning for fear of being killed. And it's one of the most moving experiences you'll ever have because when you're underground in the catacombs, you'll see all types of etchings. That was their whiteboard of the day. And this shows us the most four that are common. You see the, uh, you can see it up on the screen, you'll see the loaves and the fishes. Uh, there's one that's not on here, Jonah. They'll show a whale because Jesus said, like Jonah was in the whale three days, he would be in the heart of the great fish. Uh, there's the dove that I talked about. Uh, there's the chai ro here, or the chi ro, which is really Christ in Greek as a symbol. And then there's an anchor with the Greek alpha and omega. And what it's saying is, God is our refuge in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the anchor of the soul. The soul needs an anchor. Horrible things are gonna happen in life. There's a God who's gonna walk it through us, with us, and he's gonna be our anchor until that final day. And then I'll end with this. There's going to be one final city of refuge. One final city. It's in the book of Revelation where there will be no blood avenger. You won't have to run anymore. You won't have to hide. There'll be no skeletons in the closet. No making fig leaves. No praying people out of purgatory. No praying the idols. 
the safest environment, and the place we were always meant to be. I asked Lee, because most writers are kind of out of bullets by Lee's age. Case for Christ, case for miracles, case of grace. He's probably out of bullets. Right? I'm like, Lee, you have any more books in you? The case for heaven comes out in September. I can't wait. He's going to write about near-death experience. He's going to write about reincarnation. So when that book comes out, you can take all the books about people that went to heaven, supposedly, and throw them out. Because eye hasn't seen, and ear hasn't heard, and nor has it entered the mind of man, the things God has prepared for you and me, but he's shown it to us by his spirit. And all those things people are written about, that's not the place I want to go. I want to go to the place God has prepared, the city of refuge, where all the former things will be gone. I'm looking for a new world that God has prepared that Adam was supposed to walk in and that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has purchased for you and me. Look, if you're in pain today, if you're struggling, call out. Now, church is wonderful because people are here. We can pray for you. There's fellowship. You should never isolate. God's not far from any one of us. Call out. He'll answer and he'll cover you. In the shelter of his wings, that peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.